James chapter 3. Let's turn there. If you need a Bible, the ushers uh, are coming forward to give you a Bible. Just slip up your hand um, if you need one. Uh, we are happy to give you one. So if you, if you don't own a Bible, we'd like to be the ones to give you one. So slip up that hand. The ushers will find you. This is our seventh week, I believe, in the book of James. It's gone by very quickly. I've enjoyed it. We talked for the first three weeks about trials and how to deal with trials and, and make our way through trials. Um, for the next three weeks, we talked about the relationship between faith and works, that we as Christians should be, as James says, not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Um, we talked last week about a very difficult text that essentially says, where James essentially goes, listen, if there's no works in your life, there may not be any faith behind it. So you can say you got faith, but unless that means something in your life, there may, no, there may not be any faith at all, okay? So this, this was very difficult, really hard. We get to another real practical passage today. And I've been telling Tom all week, I really struggle with these kinds of passages um, because they're the kind of passages that you read and you just go, yeah, duh, I get it. This, this makes all kinds of sense. There isn't a lot of explanation that's got to go into it. And I'm talking, about, talking to Tom about this, and, and, and I said, this is really your kind of, this is your kind of passage, Tom. This, this is perfect. It's all practical. It's all stories. And it's all illustration. And, and Tom told me this this week. He goes, he goes I, I feel like what I'm good at is making difficult concepts simple and taking simple concepts and keeping them simple. I'm like, well, that's really encouraging. You're good at everything. Oh, that's great, Tom. That's that's spectacular. So um, that, was, that was really encouraging. Um, I struggle with this because I, I, I think we read some of these, these lines. We, we read some of the things about the mouth, about the tongue, about the things that we say. And it just, it just makes all kinds of sense to us. And, and we, have to, we, we don't struggle with the concept of it. Okay, so because of that, what I need to ask you to do this morning is, is not primarily focus on the concept um, that the tongue is powerful, it has inherent danger, um, it, there, there is, there's great power in the words that we say. So um, we can, one way that we're really good at deflecting change in our own life and deflecting conviction um, is by dealing with concepts and ideas and never letting them get practical. Okay, it's one way that we kind of push off the Holy Spirit. So what I, what I need to ask you to do this morning, maybe more so um, than, than most weeks, is to, is to really apply this in your life. So as we're talking about these ideas, think about things that you've said, moments in your life when you are prone to use words um, to damage people and, and, and keep it personal. So um, when, I, when, I think, when I say um, keep it practical, I don't mean think about someone in your life who needs to hear this. Okay, um, so if you're sitting with your husband, you're just thinking to yourself, oh, it's, I'm glad Jim's here. And at the, at the really good spots, you're giving Jim one of these, you know, and you're going, yeah, see, see, pastor said, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I want you to think about you, not your husband, not your wife, not your kids, not your boss, not your gossip partner, but you. Okay, you, I, I want you to think about moments when you do this, because here's the deal. We haven't even started talking about it, and I don't even know most of you, but I guarantee this applies to you. I guarantee everyone in this room struggles with the things that they say being destructive, being negative, being convicted. Okay, 
So I, 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 need you to, I need you to deal with that. Now, the second reason that this passage is, is particularly troublesome for me is because it's convicting to me. Okay, so um, I spoke at Southwestern College, which is now Arizona Christian University, Southwestern College up in North Phoenix. Um, I, I do the chapel every once in a while, and um, it's, a, it's a horrible venue to speak at. I, I really dislike speaking there. You're in a gym, so the acoustics are bad. Um, you're facing the long side of the gym, so you got kids all the way over here and all the way over there. It's kind of like this, but worse. Um, it's, it's shallow. It's shallow, right? So the sound just bounces right back at you. And they're on bleachers, so they're uncomfortable, and they're squiggling all around, right? And, uh, and they're doing homework, and they're not paying attention, and they're goofing off. It's just brutal, brutal. I hate it, okay? So I've been there twice, didn't like it either time, and last time I left, I thought, you know what, I, I'm never going back there again, right? Like, it's terrible, the kids don't listen, they don't treat you very nice, you don't even get paid. I got a mouse pad from them one time, that's great. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm never doing this again. So I get, a, I get a call from Southwestern, and they got a new guy doing chapel. And it happens to be a guy that I've known since I was about 15. And he's like, hey man, I'd love for you to come do chapel. And I'm thinking, no, I don't want to come, but... You're my friend, and so I'll say yes. And so I got up there, and I told him that. I said, you realize this is the worst gig of any of the gigs, right? Like, he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'm only here because of you. He's like, oh, I appreciate that, man. So he gets up to introduce me, this guy I've known forever. He gets up to introduce me, and this is what he says. He goes, there's a certain kind of person that I like. He goes, I like Kurt Schilling. I like Charles Barkley. And at this point, I'm thinking, where is this going, right? (laughs) I think it's worse. He goes, I, I like Judge Judy, and I, and I like Simon Cowell. So I love Justin Anderson, who is here with us as our speaker. Justin, come on up. So I walk up, and I'm like, wow, that was the best introduction I've ever had. You know, introductions are always a little weird. You, you never kind of know what they're going to say. You know, the, you get everything from, hey, Justin's here, come on up. And there's nothing to like, the Holy Reverend, Justin, Andrew, you know, this kind of thing. And so that was the best, best introduction I've ever had. Because um, it, you may not have caught on to this, but I, I can be sarcastic sometimes. And, and when I make jokes, I, I often don't smile or laugh. And so I'm being hilarious, but sometimes people don't know it. And so... <laughs> Um, they, they just think to themselves, man, I think this guy's a jerk. When I'm not, well, maybe. But, but I'm also hilarious. And so um, that introduction was perfect because I walked up and they knew who I was. They knew everything was going on, okay? And so um, I did the, did the message and it went great, right? They were tracking with me the whole time, paying attention, doing less homework. It was great. I left and I'm like, man, that went really good. And I started thinking about what, what I uh, had to preach this Sunday and it was on tongue and the power of the tongue and I thought darn it that's about me if if I'm Judge Judy and Simon Cowell and Kurt Schilling and Charles Barkley this is about me and so I I hate it when the conviction comes this way I prefer dishing it out um (laughs) I don't really like having to live out my sermons and stuff and so um this is really hard This is a very convicting, very sobering passage if we will take it seriously, okay? So my my only request this morning is that you will take this seriously, deal with the ideas, um, but but then also think about moments in your life when when you do this stuff, because you do. 
I guarantee it, you do. And we'll talk about, maybe I'll give you some helps and some ideas. Um, but, but you know your own life. You need to apply this to your own life. Okay? Chapter 3, verse 1. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, James does also a, a kind of a problematic thing in that he starts with the application and then moves into his ideas. And so the, the end of this idea about the power of the tongue is because of all this, you should not aspire to be a teacher, many of you, right? Um, teachers in, in this day and age had a ton of power, a ton of influence. These are Jewish Christians who, most of which grew up in Judaism um, and, and sat under rabbis, um, the very name which means great one, um, that rabbis were the most respected people in the community, even though, um, biblically speaking, they, they weren't to take money, they weren't to um, enjoy any of the perks of being a rabbi, it happened. In fact, um, they were taught, young Jewish people were taught, um, that their allegiance to their parents was exceeded only by their allegiance to their rabbi, Right? That, in fact, there was one, one uh, teaching that said, if your parents and your rabbi are kidnapped, you pay the ransom for your rabbi first. <laughs> I wonder who made that rule, right? <laughs> I can just see all the rabbis getting together going, hey, you know, Rabbi Jim got kid- No, there's no rabbi's name, Jim. Rabbi Joseph got, got, got kidnapped, and so this guy's parents, we got to make a rule so that rabbi, right? So they're making these rules going, rabbis are really important. you got to respect your rabbi. you got to follow your rabbi. Rabbi, 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 right? So now in the Christian church, these, these teachers, these preachers are, are really, really highly thought of. Now, this is not altogether different than today. We, we say things, I mean, the, the reality, even though we know that this is Jesus' church, right? I'm, I'm teaching my little daughter, she's two and a half, uh, um, that the church, and we go, when we go to the Tempe campus, I go, hey, whose church is this? And she says, Jesus' church. That's right. Because I don't want her to ever say, that's my daddy's church. It's not. It's Jesus' church. The reality is, though, that oftentimes the preaching pastor becomes the face, becomes the identity of a congregation to where we say things like, I go to Tom Schrader's church. I go to uh, Cal Jernigan's church. I go to Lynn Winter's church. I go to Mark Connolly's church. It's, it's not their church. It's Jesus' church. And God has given um, some a role of teaching that oftentimes gets overblown. In spite of what it should or should not be, the reality is that teachers enjoy a larger amount of influence than non-teachers. There is an amount of authority and responsibility, opportunity and influence that comes from standing right here. I'm the one opening the Bible, disseminating information about the Bible, talking about the power of the scriptures, instructing you on on how to live. Now, certainly the Holy Spirit guides and the Holy Spirit convicts and the Holy Spirit changes, but, but this role is an important role. And so it seems like many in this church were aspiring to be that guy so that they could have the influence. And so James gives them a very sobering reminder that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Right? Um, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your soul. So um, the, the front half of that passage is great for me, right? It's telling you, obey your leaders and submit to your leaders. So um, the, the vision of the leaders, the decisions of the leaders, there's something there that means obey and submit, Okay, now, I don't want to go too far down this road, but in our world today, where people just hop from church to church and, and switch churches, we make one decision and you leave, I don't understand how that is in any way obeying and submitting to leaders. Like, I, I don't want to go too far down the road, but I'm going to go just far enough to hopefully convict some people. Because there's a whole lot of church shopping and, and jumping and hopping and all this going on. When the, the leadership of a church makes a decision, you go, no, nah, I don't like that. I'm leaving. In what way are you submitting? Like, I get it. If there's a decision made and it's unbiblical, absolutely. Call them to account. Say, that is an unbiblical decision that you've made. What you said there is, is evil, it's sinful, and it's not biblical. Got it. All day long you should do that. But we decided to paint this room gray. I'm leaving. We took out the pews and we put in chairs. I'm out of here. How is that in any way submitting to and obeying your leaders? What does that even mean at that, time, at that point? Okay, so that means something. It, it means something for you. It means something for me. Because that is a great amount of responsibility. So um, when, when Hebrews says, obey your leader and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give account. So we've, we've got the, the power responsibility on one side, and then we've got the accountability on the other. So yeah, there's, a, there's a, a, an obedience and a submission thing here, but there's also going to come a day where I stand before God and God goes, hey, Justin, there were 5,000 people at Redemption Church. What did you do with them? Tell me about your, their souls. Tell me about how you led them. Tell me about how you taught them. Tell me about how you modeled godly leadership to them. That there will come a moment that I will stand before God and have to answer for you. I mean, that, that's, that's this relationship of submitting to elders who then have to stand before God and, and give an account for your life. So, so this position is not just all influence and power. It's a whole lot of responsibility and accountability as well. Okay. So James tempers their enthusiasm by saying, listen, this teaching thing, is, it's, it's not all it's cracked up to be. There is significant downside. Then he says, we will be, we will be judged with greater strictness. Judged by God, certainly, no question, because our, our, our words exert great influence. There's, there's no question about this. And, and I'll tell you this, this is only getting more true as, as technology increases. So think about this. James is writing this to a, to a people who have the ability to communicate verbally, though without this contraption here. So maybe I could talk to this amount of people at once, not this whole room and another room across campus via video, right? So only could communicate verbally and then through written text. Now we can 
communicate through video, we can communicate through um, um, you know, sound system, we can communicate digitally, we can communicate through email, through social media. So the ability to communicate has simply risen and risen and risen and risen and risen. Therefore, um, the judgment too has only risen because the opportunity for influence continues to rise. So um, think about social media, right? This illustration will get more and more appropriate as the day goes on, but um, think about Facebook and Twitter. So um, when I was thinking about this idea this morning, I looked on my Facebook and I have currently 1,556 friends on Facebook. I know like four of them, but, but 1,556 friends, several hundred people that follow me on Twitter. So when I post things on there, which is not altogether often, um, but when I post things on there, that, that is influencing not just the, the people I'm speaking to, but people on the other side of the world, literally, on the other side of the world who read my words and, and are influenced by them to, to some degree. At moments a lot and at moments a little. But, but there is influence there to some degree. So when you post things, um, you are influencing people. You are teaching people about um, how to live, about what is good, about what is bad, about what they should value, right? I mean, the immediate context here is specifically teachers in the church. But, it, but it's a really simple step to broaden that out and going, we, we who communicate ideas, information, details, emotion, ethics, values in any context to kids, to parents, to peers, in our workplace, whatever it is, we are teaching, shaping, forming, influencing. And there will be accountability for what you say. There will be accountability. So James says we we shouldn't rush to teach. We shouldn't be quick to want to instruct because what we say, if it's not true and leads someone astray, that comes back to us. If we use that influence to manipulate, to shape, to to gossip, to slander, that comes back to us. So if we post, I hate this guy. This guy's so dumb. This politician doesn't know what he's talking about. This athlete's terrible. This pastor is a heretic. We are communicating, we are having influence that we will eventually be held accountable for. So let's not, let's not read this, um, it's only for teachers, cool, I'm not, I don't want to be a pastor, I don't want to be a preacher, so this is not about me. Uh-uh, we don't get to do that because the words that we say influence. We got a lot of them. By some measurements, um, every day, every man speaks 5,000 words a day. Every woman, it's about 8,000. You just draw whatever conclusions you want on that, all right? I'm not touching it, all right? That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words. And everything you say has, has effect, it has influence, it ripples, it, it touches people, it connects people, right? And so James is simply going, listen, don't become teachers, my brothers, for you know that you who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When we teach, there is accountability for what we teach, so be clear about what you're teaching. Be aware of the influence that you have, right? Um, 
there may be a part of this too that James is talking specifically to these people because we're only two chapters in, right? We're just starting the third chapter and we already know quite a bit about these people um, based on what James has taught them and corrected them in. So we know that these people are partial. They're fighters, they're slanderers, talkers, blame shifters. They don't do anything. They're hypocrites. They're quick to anger. They like to hear themselves talk. They want material things. They're double-minded. They don't ask for wisdom. They're unhappy. They don't listen and they value importance over godliness, and they claim to be Christian. Okay, so um, James certainly is, is coming to these people and going, you want to be a teacher? You? That, that there needs to be at least a moment of kind of going, let's reflect, let's do some self-reflection here and go, um, do I have anything important to say? Is, is, is there actually any, any words that I'm speaking that are valuable, that are wise? Right? Am I able to communicate them in a gracious manner, in a winsome manner, in a, in a merciful manner? Am I, am I even able to communicate that way? Remember your mom always says, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Right? I got in trouble for that one a lot. And then lastly, um, does your life completely ruin everything you say? I mean, the quickest way to lose all credibility is to be a hypocrite, is to promote these ethics and live that way. To say, oh man, these are the most important things in the world, but then everything you do communicates that these are the most important things in the world. You, you, you render all of your words hollow and worthless at that moment when you say it's this way and you live that way. Okay, so um, I, I think there's a moment here because there are, there are some in this room that, that want to be teachers, that are teachers. And I think that this requires a, at least a moment of pause and reflection to go, who am I? Do, is, is there anything valuable that I, that I have to say? Am I, am I speaking truth? Am I, am I gifted for this? And does my life back up? Though, Obviously not perfectly, but in large part, does my life back up what I'm teaching? Okay, so this is, this is where James starts to go, here's the application. Don't be quick to teach. It's a serious business, okay? And then he gets into some of the ideas. Verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. That is an enormous statement that he makes right there. Let me, let me read that again. For we all stumble in many ways. We all sin. That happens. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, if we don't sin in what we say, he is a perfect man, a teleos man, perfected for, for God's purposes, mature, able also to bridle his whole body. What James just said there is, your little tongue, this little tiny little member of your body, if you can get that under control, there would be a trickle effect to where you could actually have your whole body under control. That this little thing is that powerful that if you are strong enough and um, by grace able to actually bridle your tongue and get your tongue under control you would actually be able to control everything else. How, how can that be true? Well, biblically speaking, 
the words that are spoken, words in general, are unbelievably powerful, to name a few. The Son of God is called the Word, John 1. The universe was created with a word, Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11. All things are held in existence by the word, Hebrews 1. God reveals himself to us through the word. Jesus healed and cast out demons with the word. Faith is sustained by words. We fellowship with God by the words of prayer. We worship him through the words of song and confession and preaching. And, and this is a pet peeve of mine, so I'm just going to stop here for a second. We just sang a song before, before I came up that said, we lift up holy hands. And, and we sang that in large part. I'm sure there were some of you who didn't. But in large part, we sang that. And I was looking around. And there was only like three of you with hands lifted up. And yet all of us sang, we lift up our hands. And then we said even something worse. We said, we bow down and worship you now. And I mean, some of you are short. Maybe I missed you. But, it, but I didn't see anyone bowing down when we sang that song. Now, I'm not saying that if you sang the song and you weren't bowing down or lifting your hands, that, it, that you were in sin or you're rebelling against God or you're a liar or anything. But here's what I am saying. When we sing words... It means something, right? It, it, it means something. Otherwise, if we're just singing out of kind of religious tradition and it's what we do and everyone else around me is singing and, and we just say things, they're empty and meaningless and it's not worship. So we, we, just, we just say things, I lift up my hands. Do we mean by that later on, I'm going to lift up my hands? We bow down and worship you. Is it, well, when it's a song that I like, I'll bow down, I'll lift up my hands. When it's, when it's got a really great hook, really great chorus, then I'll lift up my hands. This, this is in part why I love um, the old hymns so much. They talk about eternal things that never change. How great thou art is always true. And it doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on me to be true. I lift up my hands and we bow down. That depends on me and my response. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. When we sing, I love you, Lord, sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's not. But when we sing of the glory of God, when we sing about amazing grace, God's grace is always amazing. Even when we reject it, it never ceases to be amazing. The words we say, the words we sing, the words we pray ought to mean something. Something. Anything. Or just don't sing them. That, that's really important. For, for the, these moments of worship, when there's supposed to be these transcendent moments where we are worshiping and glorifying God, it seems like the words we say should mean the words we say. Our relationships are all sustained and nurtured by words. We speak our love to each other by words. Kings rise and fall by their words. Politics, news, entertainment, business, education, international relations, families, friendships are all possible because of words. 
So yes, if we bridle our tongue, it will allow us to bridle our whole bodies. Words are that important. Our tongues are that vital. They shape our world so much. Jesus takes it a step further in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Let me rewind. Read that one again. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus says, there, there will come a day where we stand before God and God says, you said that. What did you mean by that? And we'll go, oh, I didn't really mean it. Well, then why did you say it? God will go, you said this that one time to that person and it crushed them. Why did you say that? Well, I didn't really mean that. But you said it. To the, to the extent that Jesus goes, you will be judged by the things you say. Because we're saved by works and the things that we say, if we say a bunch of good things, we'll be saved. And we say a bunch of bad things, we'll be condemned. No. Because of what Jesus said, we speak what's in our hearts. Out of the overflow of what's here, comes out of our mouth. Exercises out in our hands and our feet. Everything starts here. So just like we talked about last week, that our works, our lives are evidence of our faith. And our lack of works and lack of life change are evidence of lack of faith. We've got a very good example here. Jesus says, for example, the words that you say, do you speak encouraging words, grace-filled words, fruits of the Spirit words, words that would encourage people to love God and love their neighbor as themselves? Or are your words filled with spite? Are your words filled with anger, slander, gossip? that reflects back to your heart. So if you find yourself constantly putting people down and, and manipulating the truth, what you'll find in your heart is massive insecurity and, 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 and a fundamental disbelief in who you are in Christ. That's what's here, if, if that's what's out here. Okay, so Jesus takes this to a whole nother level to say we can just sit and talk and get a pretty good idea of what's going on in your heart. So already right now, we're, we're prone to be thinking about examples of other people. Yeah, that person's so mean to me. I knew they had a mean heart, right? That's what we're thinking. Stop. Think about what you said. Think about what you say. Think about the character of your words, the, the tenor of your words. Think about what you said this morning. This is powerful. This, this is really true. 
that, that James says, this little itty bitty piece of your body governs the whole deal. If you can get a hold of this, you can get a hold of your entire life. Then he gives us three examples. Verse three. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So um, he used these two examples, a rudder. And um, if you've ever driven a boat, right, I remember the first time I ever drove a boat, and it was this tiny little boat with a small motor on it, and I couldn't get the thing to go straight right? It was just, I'm at the back of the boat trying to do this, and I'm overcorrecting this way and overcorrecting this way. I ran, you know, trying to stay straight. I was going too fast. People are yelling at me. It was the most nerve-wracking experience of my life. The most gentle little movement on that rudder changed my direction. The most subtle little change back, and I'm going back back to the left and back to the right. I mean, just not only is it just a small little piece of equipment that moves an entire boat, but it's just the most subtle, subtle of movements that shifts. It's it's amazing how the not only the, the smallness of our tongue relative to our body, but the seeming insignificance of words that move and shape and change our lives. Sometimes it's just a small phrase that changes our, our, our lives forever. So my senior year of high school, I played baseball all my life. I was pretty good at it. My senior year of high school, I got cut from the baseball team. Catastrophic. I never, never thought I would recover. It was the worst moment of my life. And, and, and it, it just, I mean, that, those three words, you were cut, was... It changed my life forever. I transferred to another school, had a pretty good season, got a, got a baseball scholarship to go play in college, um, played college ball, got hooked up to the church, got a job, met my wife, came back here to plant a church, merged it with this other church called East Valley, and now I'm here. Because of that moment, when what seemed horrible, saying, you're cut, changed the course of my life. There's, there's a lot of those moments like, I love you. Like, will you marry me? It's a girl. It's a boy, which I heard the other day. My wife's pregnant, and I found out it's a boy. That's what I was hoping for. (laughs) Words like, I have bad news. You're going to want to sit down for this. It's cancer. These are, these are moments that, that alter our lives forever. These, these small little phrases, just, just these, these few words that can change everything, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, but they affect us. I read a study this week about marriage. It said this, two psychologists studied newlyweds over the first decade of marriage. They found a very subtle but telling difference at the beginning of their relationships. Among couples who would ultimately stay together, five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put-downs. Five out of every 100 comments, not five 
negative, 95 positive, just five negative, the rest could be good, bad, or ugly. Five out of every 100 comments made about each other were put-downs. Among couples who would later split, 10 of every 100 comments were insults. That gap magnified over the following decade until couples heading downhill were flinging five times as many cruel and invalidating comments at each other as happy couples. Hostile put-downs, they said, act as cancerous cells that, if unchecked, erode the relationship over time. In the end, relentless, unremitting negativity takes control, and the couple can't get through a week without major blow-ups. Just a little comment. Five out of every 100 comments you make to your spouse. Things like, are you going to wear that? It's just a comment. Comments like, I wish you could cook like her. Comments like, why don't you make money like him? Comments like, um, why, don't, why don't we have that house? And why can't you get me that car? And why can't you provide this for us? Why are you so stupid? Just these, just these little comments, these insidious, offhanded remarks that slowly over time degrade our love for one another, degrade our trust of one another, that little by little by little get us off course until we find ourselves in a destination we never intended to be. Everybody stands on the altar and says, till death do us part. Everybody stands on the altar and says, till death do us part. And half of us are lying. Because little things, little moments, little comments, little decisions that land us at a different destination. They may be small, but they move great ships. Verse 5. The end of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Winston Churchill once said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. It's amazing how quickly mistruth and lie travels. How quickly something, um, that, the, a way that we can characterize someone, the way that we can slander someone can so quickly multiply and, and, and make the change. So we saw that in spades as we were starting Redemption Church. There were so many rumors going around about what we were doing or weren't doing. And um, Tom was going to quit at one point, which he kind of thought, hey, that's a good idea. Um, but but it, it was, there was all kinds of false rumors about what was going on. It was amazing how quickly that would spread. It's amazing how quickly lies, manipulation, slander, gossip. It's amazing how quickly that spreads. It is a, it is a fire that it starts with a little spark, just a little offhanded comment that can destroy great things. 
the power of our words can be negative, certainly, as James says, but they can also be positive. And think, think about the phrases in, in, in world history that literally changed the world. Things like, I have a dream. I mean, that, that fundamentally changed our society. I mean, that, that idea changed the way we look at people and look at the world. Things like, one small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. Changed the way we, we looked at the universe and the way we could um, envision humanity growing and accomplishing things in our world. Things like Abraham Lincoln saying, four score and seven years ago. He, he set forth in that Gettysburg Address, set forth a vision for our country. It's powerful. John F. Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Set optimism and hope for our nation. Things like speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far was the philosophy of a country. And then on the negative side, things like Karl Marx saying religion is the opiate of the people opened the door for secularism, humanism to pervade our culture. It's modernism paired with this, with this humanistic viewpoint of the world and shaped what is the modern West in significant ways. I mean, these, these phrases that not only change lives and, and kind of shape our lives, but change nations, change the way we, we view the world. Just, just this little tongue. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Um, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan has a character called Talkative. And in Talkative is described this way. He was a saint abroad, and a devil at home. I hope you've never had a moment where you've gotten to church and um, your husband starts to talk with other people at church about, oh, the grace of God, and we're just blessed, man. And you start to look at your husband like, who is this guy? Who, who is this guy who leads at church but not at home? Who, who is this man who is this spiritual giant, an elder at the church, but doesn't take time to spiritually lead his children? Who is this guy who will break from work for, for church, but will not break from work for a t-ball game, a piano recital, or just to be at home for dinner? Who is this guy? That is, that is the height of hypocrisy. When we speak out of the same mouth of the glories of God and the blessings of grace, and out of the same mouth we put down and belittle our wives and our children. I mean, just, just think about the things you said on your way to church this morning. As we, we come in those doors angry and bickering, and then the hands are up, three of us, hands are up. And, and we're singing about the love of God and glory of God. and We bow down and worship you, God. 
but we just spent the 15-minute drive belittling our wives and ignoring our children, nagging our husbands, expecting way too much out of our young children. It's hypocrisy. And, and James goes, listen, how can we, out of the same mouth, praise God and then curse people who are made in the image of God? We, we are far too quick to characterize a person by, by the things that they believe. And so they are no longer... Um, created by God, sons, daughters of God, made in the image of likeness of God, they are Democrats. They're Republicans. They're conservative. They're liberal. They're Canadian. They're American. They're whatever, whatever category we, we want to put them in. They cease to be people and they become their ideas, and so we feel free to curse them. And so we get on our Facebook and say, oh, this person is bad. This person, this politician is stupid. This, this pastor is a heretic. Not dealing with them as if they were actually creating the likeness of God. So we praise God and curse the things that God created. And James says, this just ought not to be so. This is unnatural. This is, this is not the way we are supposed to use our tongues. So James's application very clearly here is for teachers. But the power of the tongue exceeds just that teaching moment, that, that teaching environment. The power of the tongue to encourage, to discover, to exhort to prepare people, to, to move people to love God and to love their neighbor is powerful. But the power of the tongue can also manifest itself in slander, in gossip, in manipulation, in lies, cut downs, and thoughtlessness. The environment is not just teaching, it's fights in relationships, it's saying something regretful to a friend, boasting about who you are and what you can do, speaking without forethought, and, and it's all the things you should say to your kids, but you don't. It's, it's, it's all the things you, you ought to have said, but didn't. So, what I'm going to ask, what I'm going to ask this morning is simply this that we would think about what we say. Let's start there. We're, we're not going to be able to bridle our tongue altogether. James already told us that the tongue can't be tamed, but we can begin to think about what we say. And, and at least run it through a basic grid of the two things that Jesus said were the most important commandments in the Bible. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we've got this vertical commandment and a horizontal commandment. If we can at least run the things that we say through that grid to say to ourselves, does this love God? Am I, what I'm about to say, does this love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength? And does it love my neighbor as myself. Because here, here's the deal about this. Everyone knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of this. Everyone knows what it feels like to be slandered. 
Everyone knows what it feels like to be gossiped about. Everyone knows the pain of being misrepresented, but we don't think about it when we're misrepresenting. We know what it's like to be manipulated, but we don't consider that when we manipulate. We, we, we've experienced the pain. We've experienced the victim side of the words, the tongue, but when we are the accuser, the liar, the manipulator, the gossip, we forget. So if we can just run everything we say through that grid, perhaps we will end up looking more like what James told us in chapter one, that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, because before we've spoken, we've gone, does this love God? And does this love my neighbor as myself? Does this cause the other person to love God? Can this help the other person to love their neighbor as themselves? Um, James, in, in verse 2, said, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. There was only one perfect man, Jesus who spoke truth with every word that uttered from his mouth. But in the moment when he could have spoken most boldly, in, in the moment when he could have spoken most passionately, most authoritatively, he was silent. Pastor Paul is going to come in a moment, lead us in communion, and talk more about that moment on the cross when our Savior was silent. There is one who was perfect, perfect in what he said and perfect in what he did. And it is by his death on the cross that we might, by his grace, begin to follow in his footsteps, to believe the gospel, to believe truly that there is nothing more important in this world than knowing God, loving God, experiencing God, obeying God, because God loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, you were the one perfect one. You were the only one who completely bridled his tongue, spoke only truth, spoke it exactly the way it ought to be spoken, sometimes firmly to those who called themselves religious, sometimes with grace, to those who were broken. God, I pray that as we go today, go throughout our lives, that we would at least pause and think, of, think about the implications of what we want to say. Think about the impact that our words might have to the people around us. Think about the influence that we exert and will be held responsible for. That we would be gracious with our speech, that we would be truthful with our speech, that we would not gossip and slander those whom you created in your own image. God, I pray that we would love you with our heart and mind and soul and strength, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, we would do so with our words. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.